The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. I want to invite you to be seated and ask David and Alyssa Williams to join me here. Uh, many of you will know David and Alyssa. David has been a part of this Holy Trinity community for about a dozen years. Uh, he, he and I turned up at, to Holy Trinity at about the same time in 2010. Uh, David served as uh, InterVarsity staff worker at NC State University at that time. A few years later, he moved up to New York where he at, as the result of many, many prayers found and married Alyssa. Uh, and uh, they have, they had a ministry in New York City for several years to graduate students there and then moved to England in 2018 uh, where David is doing a PhD at Oxford and working with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship uh, serving uh, graduate students, young professionals and Alyssa joined him on staff uh, just a little bit after they arrived in Oxford. So it is a joy to have them back here in town. Their son, Charlie, will be here later this morning. He's three. I would encourage you to stick around just so you can meet Charlie <laughs> after the service. Uh, and uh, they will be sharing uh, afterwards up in the courtyard classroom, giving a bit of an update on life and ministry in Oxford. So if you're able to stick around, there will be uh, fancy donuts uh, in addition to an update and from free books and free books <laughs> fancy donuts and free books that is a great combination uh, let me pray for David as he prepares to preach for us Lord God we thank you for long-term partnership we thank you for David and for Alyssa and for Charlie and for their ministry in Oxford would you teach us from your word this morning as David preaches would you encourage us as we seek to take up our cross and follow our Lord we pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you. Ah, well, good morning. Uh, would you please pray with me? 
Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Who do you think you are? Who do others think that you are? Those are important questions for any of us because who you think you are shapes how you carry yourself in the world and it can really shake us when our idea of who we are doesn't line up with how other people see us. Uh, I wrestled for Cary High School. Uh, it was a very formative experience and I was very proud to have been a Cary wrestler. Uh, but last summer, I had the experience of going through security at the airport and the TSA agent looked at the guy in front of me in line and asked him, were you a wrestler? You look like a wrestler. The guy shook his head, nah, and the agent gave him back his ID. So I stepped up, handed her my passport, and said, I was a wrestler. <laughs> she looked me up and down and said, you look like a computer guy. <laughs> uh, I still haven't quite gotten over it. Um, so the questions of who you think you are and of who others think you are are very important questions for any of us. Uh, but there is another question that is even more vital, although it is related. If you have your Bibles with you or you have the Pew Bibles, please open them to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, starting with verse 27. In our Gospel text this morning, Jesus asks his disciples and us the most consequential question that has ever been asked. Who do you say I am? Now this may not have been the question on the top of your, morn, or your, mind, or your mind this morning, but it is the question on which world history has turned for the last two millennia, whether we realize it or not. The great Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan put it this way, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible, with some sort of super magnet, to pull up out of the history every scrap of metal at least bearing a trace of his name, how much would be left? The answer is, not much. I'll give you an example. So, as you've just heard, for the last five years, Alyssa and I have had the privilege of studying and ministering to graduate students uh, at the University of Oxford. The university is comprised of 39 colleges, colleges with names like Trinity College and Christ Church College and Jesus College. Some are named after saints, and nearly all the colleges have chapels and choirs. The university now is supposed to be secular, but Oxford's motto etched in stone everywhere you look, is still Dominus Illuminatio Mia, Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light. If you were to use Pelican's super magnet to pull up every trace of Jesus' influence on Oxford, there would be nothing left but creeks and cow pastures. And much the same could be said about nearly everything that we prize in Western culture today, especially when it comes to our most fundamental values, our idea of who we are, and of what matters most. This is why I say that the question of who Jesus was is the most consequential question that has ever been asked. So this morning, as we look at Mark chapter 8, 
we're going to wrestle with the meaning and the identity of Jesus by asking three big questions. First, who is Jesus? Second, why should anyone believe in him? And third, so what? What difference does it make? So first, who was Jesus? Or better yet, who is Jesus? Let me set the scene for us. Our passage comes from the midpoint of Mark's gospel, the very earliest account that we have of the life of Jesus. When the scene opens, Jesus has been going from village to village in the poverty-stricken region of Galilee, and he's been miraculously healing people by the hundreds, miraculously feeding them by the thousands. He's been teaching in cryptic parables and riddles and saying that the kingdom of God was drawing near. People were astonished by his teaching and his miracles. They were rattled by his authority, and they were perplexed by his embrace of rejects and outsiders. Predictably, he had begun to attract crowds wherever he went. He was a man of the people, and a movement was rapidly growing around him. He had also begun to attract controversy. The scribes and the Pharisees, the self-appointed guardians of Jewish piety, took umbrage at the way that Jesus presumed to speak for God, forgiving people's sins, the way he flouted Jewish rules of purity and of decorum, the way he shamelessly fraternized with traitors and hookers and other good-for-nothings, and the way he played fast and loose with the Sabbath laws, and so on. They thought he was a heretic, a blasphemer, or worse. So there was a buzz about Jesus in the air. Who is this man Jesus? Who does he think he is? What's his angle? What's his end game? Inquiring minds wanted to know. It's against this background that Jesus leads his disciples into the city of Caesarea Philippi in the northernmost region of Israel and asks them who they think he is. Caesarea Philippi was named after Philip, a member of the brutal and corrupt Herodian dynasty that had usurped the throne of Israel and also after Tiberius Caesar, who ruled the Roman Empire uh, that then occupied Israel as a client kingdom. The city, so named, stood as an emblem of a whole political order built on graft, cruelty, and foreign oppression. And it was a stark reminder that God had not yet done, according to the prophets, what he had promised to do. The people of Israel we're still waiting for the prophet Daniel's ancient and mysterious dream to finally come true. The for the God, the ancient of days, to raise up one like a son of man to share his throne and to give him an everlasting dominion and an indestructible kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him and the God of Israel. This wasn't an otherworldly spiritual dream. For many in Israel, this was very much a this-worldly political hope. They said they wanted a revolution, and they were waiting for God to raise up the man who would change the world and make Israel great again. So, when Jesus asked his disciples, in that place and at that moment, who do people say that I am, it must have sounded to them like a politician in an election year raising a finger to the wind, checking the opinion polls to see what his prospects for higher office might be. So what were people saying about Jesus? His disciples reported 
Some say you're John the Baptist, back from the dead. Others say you're a new Elijah, here to challenge the powers that be. And still others say you're a prophet with a direct line to the big man upstairs. But then Jesus turned and asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? I wonder how long it took them to answer. Was there a pregnant pause, a long, awkward silence? The text doesn't tell us. But the text does tell us that the first one to speak up was a disciple named Simon Bar-Jonah, better known to us as St. Peter. It's best not to imagine Peter here with a halo around his head the way he's often portrayed in medieval and Renaissance paintings. Instead, you should try to imagine Peter as the hard scrabble commercial fisherman turned disciple that he then was. After all, Peter, or Petros, was his nickname, and it just meant rock. And Bar-Jonah just means son of John. So whenever you read the name Peter in the Gospels, think Rocky Johnson. So when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Rocky answered him, you are the Christ, God's anointed, the next king of Israel, the one we've been waiting for to send Philip and Caesar packing and to set the whole world right again. Peter's answer is explosive in its implications. It's a call for revolution. And he clearly thought that this was the answer that Jesus was fishing for. And he wasn't wrong. But at that very moment, when Peter and the rest of the disciples were expecting Jesus to publicly announce the beginning of his campaign for Messiah, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Not yet. Then, Mark tells us, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, the King that the prophet Daniel had dreamed of, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. This is how Israel's true king would reclaim his throne and establish God's eternal kingdom. And instead of speaking in riddles and parables, as he usually did, Jesus said this all plainly. He gave it to them straight, and he scared the pants off of them. <laughs> you see, Jesus wanted a revolution too, but Jesus' revolution was to be more transformative and farther reaching than Peter and the disciples could yet imagine. So first, he needed to spell out his agenda to make sure his future spokespeople were all on message before he would officially launch his campaign on Easter morning. Here again, the location of this conversation is instructive. Caesarea Philippi wasn't just a political symbol. The city was also famous for its pagan temples and was emblematic of an entire pagan moral and religious worldview. As Jesus and the disciples walked through downtown Caesarea Philippi, they would have passed the Augustium, a temple dedicated to the worship of Octavian, the founder of the Roman Empire. In life, August, uh, uh, Octavian had been acclaimed as Augustus Caesar after he defeated all comers, consolidated his power, and then led Rome to conquer much of the Mediterranean world. Upon his death, he was declared to be a god, and the worship of Caesar became a staple of life in the Roman Empire thereafter. 
The Augustian, his temple, spoke of the entire worldview and value system underpinning the culture of the pre-Christian world. The historian Tom Holland describes this worldview well. Holland writes, divinity was for the very greatest of the great, for victors and heroes and kings. Its measure was the power to torture one's enemies, not to suffer it oneself, to nail them to rocks of a mountain or to turn them into spiders or to blind and crucify them after conquering the world. The Augustium and the other temples of Caesarea Philippi were monuments to this entire ancient religious and political mindset. And it is this worldview, this whole system of values, that Jesus was going to turn upside down. Jesus declared to his disciples that he was indeed the one that they had been waiting for. But the royal road to his enthronement led down, not up. It would take him through humiliation and death and out the other side. Jesus said all of this plainly, and if there wasn't an awkward silence before, there certainly was now. To Peter and the rest of the disciples, Jesus' idea of a revolution didn't sound like good news. It sounded like disaster. In fact, it sounded crazy. Which brings us to our next question about Jesus. Why should anyone believe in him? So, so far, if all of this sounds a bit far-fetched to you, you're not alone. Peter didn't buy it either. <laughs> when Peter first heard Jesus' grand plan, he took Jesus aside and warned him not to speak that way. You can't say things like that, Jesus. You're starting to scare us. You're going to mess this thing up before it's even gotten off the, off the ground. Peter wasn't unique in finding Jesus' prediction of his death and resurrection to be a tough pill to swallow. It contradicted the common sense of the entire ancient world. As the Apostle Paul wrote in his first letter to the Corinthians some 20 years later, the idea that a crucified rabbi from a backwater of the Roman Empire was the true king of kings was foolishness to the Greeks and was offensive to Jews. But that was the early church's story, and they stuck to it. Why? Because they had seen the risen Jesus with their own eyes. His tomb was empty, and God's spirit was on the move amongst them. And in the decades after Jesus' death, the news of his resurrection began to spread like wildfire, first among the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized. And then within four centuries, the good news that Jesus was Lord had become the official creed of the very empire that had put him to death. Jesus conquered Rome, not with the sword, but by winning their hearts and minds and by the Spirit. How on earth do we explain this turn in world history? Fleming Rutledge makes the point that if Jesus had not actually been raised from the dead, none of us would ever have heard of him. There were about a dozen would-be messianic movements that sprung up between the first century BC and the second century AD, and all of them were snuffed out by the Romans or by other Jews. Can you name any of their leaders? Do their names ring any bells for you? Ever heard of Simon Bar-Giora, or Thutis, or Judas of Gamala? No. I would be absolutely shocked if you had, except for John. <laughs> when they were killed, their claims and their movements died with them. 
and they were forgotten by all but a handful of professional historians. Their names had been buried in the sands of time. Not so with Jesus. Within just a few days of his crucifixion, his disciples were proclaiming that he was indeed the Messiah and that God had raised him from the dead. These disciples, including Peter, initially ran and hid, as did most followers of failed would-be messiahs. But then, within a matter of weeks, they were proclaiming boldly that Jesus was not dead and buried, but the living Lord. Again, consider Rocky Johnson. We see in this text that Peter could not stomach the idea that Jesus could be both crucified and king. And we know that he abandoned Jesus at the hour of his arrest. But we also know, as a matter of historical fact, from Easter onwards, Peter not only spent the rest of his days preaching that the risen Jesus was Lord, but he took that good news into the belly of the beast to Rome itself. And in 64 AD, Peter died a martyr's death in Rome, crucified upside down because he did not believe himself worthy to die in the same position as his king. How do you begin to explain any of that unless Peter really believed that Jesus really was raised from the dead? I don't pretend to have knockdown arguments and I cannot give you definitive proofs. His history doesn't work that way. But there are good, good reasons to believe in Jesus' resurrection. And there are difficult questions facing anyone who wants to deny it. Which brings us to our third question. So what? What difference does it make? What difference has Christ made historically to our culture? And what difference does Christ make to you and me? I'll take these one at a time first. The difference Christ has made. The great Southern writer Flannery O'Connor once said that while the American South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-haunted and that even the Southerner who isn't convinced of Christianity is nevertheless very much afraid that he or she may have been formed in the image and likeness of God. Maybe that describes some of us here this morning. Now, Jesus undoubtedly casts a long shadow over Southern culture, but I think any impartial student of history would have to say that the entire Western world is Christ-haunted, and it's a good thing, too. Before Christ, it was taken for granted that there were fundamentally different kinds of people. People were strictly ranked by birth and sex and class and tribe. Some people counted, most people didn't. In the fourth century BC, and the BC is the important point here, Aristotle put it this way, from the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection and others for rule. So, who was marked out for rule? Able-bodied, able-minded, well-born, and well-off men. It was a man's world. Dignity, rights, privilege, and power were reserved for those who had the good fortune of being healthy, wealthy, and male. And who was marked out for subjection? Everyone else. Slaves made up roughly a third of Rome's urban populations and had no rights whatsoever. They were regarded by the Romans as non-habens personum, as non-persons, literally as not having a face. They were faceless. 
unwanted children, children who were sickly or handicapped or deformed or who were just female, were considered disposable and were regularly tossed into trash heaps and into sewers and left to die. Women were treated as the property of men and foreigners were regarded as barbarians to be conquered or kept at bay. In the ancient world, women, children, foreigners, slaves were all marked out for subjection from the hour of their birth. Before Christ, they were all faceless. But in Christ, all of that changed. After Jesus' death and resurrection, when the early Christians saw slaves, women, children, the poor, the weak, the sick, they did not see the faceless. They saw the faces of people for whom Christ had died. In fact, they saw the face of Christ himself. In his book, A Brief History of Thought, the agnostic philosopher Luc Ferry, a professor at the University of Paris, says that the Christian gospel gave us the modern notion of a common humanity. Professor Ferry writes this, after Christ, humanity would never again be able to divide itself philosophically according to a natural and aristocratic hierarchy of beings between superior and inferior, gifted and less gifted, masters and slaves. From then on, according to Christians, we were all brothers on the same level as creatures of God. Rich or poor, intelligent or simple, it no longer holds any importance. And the Greek concept of barbarian slowly disappeared to be replaced by the conviction that humanity is one. Now, have Christians always lived out this moral vision consistently? Certainly not. Have we ever lived up to it fully? No, of course we haven't. Nevertheless, the fact remains that this moral revolution has reshaped the world. Today, if you take it for granted that all human beings have intrinsic worth, if you believe that all men and women are created equal and are endowed with inalienable rights, if you believe that people should not be judged by the color of their skin but by the contents of their character, if you think slavery is wrong and infanticide is murder and that people on the other side of the world are people too, then your moral compass has been fundamentally oriented by the revolution set in motion by Jesus of Nazareth some 2,000 years ago. It was this revolution that inspired Christians to invent, yes, invent hospitals and establish schools and orphanages the world over and to develop ideas like human rights and the rule of law. The cross has given Christians unparalleled resources for moral self-criticism and self-correction. Even though the great reform, uh, reforms uh, of the 19th and 20th century that gave us the abolition of slavery or the end of child labor or uh, women's suffrage may have come too late, it is no accident that they came within the realm of Christendom and were typically justified on explicitly Christian grounds. The world is Christ-haunted and it's a good thing too. This is how the historian Tom Holland also an agnostic, describes how he realized that Western culture is Christ-haunted and that he was too. He writes, the more years I spent immersed in the study of classical antiquity, so the more alien I increasingly found it. It was not just the extreme callousness that unsettled me, but the complete lack of any sense that the poor or the weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. Why did I find this disturbing? 
because in my morals and ethics, I was not a Spartan or a Roman at all. For a millennium and more, the civilization into which I had been born was Christendom. Assumptions that I had grown up with about how a society should properly be organized and the principles that it should uphold were not bred of classical antiquity, still less of human nature, but very distinctively of that civilization's Christian past. So profound has been the impact of Christianity on the development of Western civilization that it has come to be hidden from view. So what difference has Christ made to culture? All the difference in the world. So much difference that we now experience it as fish experience water. We're all Christ-haunted whether we know it or not. So what difference does Christ make now to you and me? In this morning's passage, Jesus spells out for us what his revolution means for his disciples then and now. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I think this is why Christ haunts us. We're haunted by the possibility that the gospel might be true and by the question of what it would mean for us to become Christ-centered, take up our crosses and follow him. In our meritocratic, bootstrapping culture, we're haunted by the idea that grace and mercy might actually be decisive and that the last really will be first and the first really will be last. We fear that after spending our best years climbing corporate or academic or social ladders, we will discover that not only were our ladders leaned against the wrong buildings, but we were climbing them the wrong way, that the way up was always down, and that to save our lives, we always had to lose them. We are haunted by the prospect that the ends do not justify the means, not in business nor in politics, and that we could gain the whole world win the next election, corner the market, but lose our souls. And we are very much afraid that we are all made in God's image, that God loves every single human being, even our worst enemies, and that we should love them too. <laughs> These questions haunt us because they're not just about how we see Jesus, but about how we see ourselves. But the other side of this haunting is hope. Hope that suffering and weakness do not indicate God's distance from us or his coldness towards us. Hope that whatever you are going through or whatever you have done, God sees your face and he loves you. Hope that there might be more to life than bootstrapping and ladder climbing. Hope that God's love really is stronger than death and really does conquer all. And that on the other side of a Christ-centered, cross-bearing life, is resurrection. So now what? Some of us have been followers of Jesus for a long time, but maybe like Peter and like me, you struggle with the idea that our crucified Lord calls us to a cruciform life. My prayer for us is that we would lay hold of the hope that we have in Christ so that we could be freed from, the, from fear to live wholehearted and self-sacrificial lives. Some of you are not convinced. You wouldn't call yourselves Christian. But if you're honest, you're Christ-haunted. 
It's probably why you're here. <laughs> if that's you, I hope that I've shown you that there are good reasons uh, to, to take the gospel seriously and to believe that Jesus is risen and that Jesus is Lord. But if Jesus is indeed risen from the dead, then he is not a mere historical figure. He's not past, he is present. And the most vital question before each of us is not my question, who do you think Jesus is? But the question that Jesus Christ is asking each of us right here and right now, who do you say that I am? So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak powerfully to our hearts by your spirit. For those of us who are flagging in faith, we pray that you would renew our hope and reassure us of your love. For those of us who are unsure or who are skeptical, Lord, we pray that you would penetrate our hearts, Lord, that you would give us conviction that you are indeed alive, that you do indeed reign, and that that is indeed good news. Lord, I pray that you would give us the gift of faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.